Hi, welcome back to the JPO Podcast. I'm Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and today we're bringing you the next episode in our Best of POSNA 2020 series. We'll be covering the sports medicine session that would have otherwise happened on subspecialty day in a corona-free world. If there's two themes to today's episode, the first is New York City because we're hosted by Drs. Cordelia Carter of NYU and Peter Fabrican of HSS, and the second would be Discord Minisky, and you will see why. I'm very pleased to say we have four authors on the line who are very generous with their time, and I'll introduce them as we go. So with no further ado, let's jump into the material. We're going to be starting with a paper entitled Athlete Burnout is Associated with Perceived Likelihood of Future Injury Among Healthy Adolescent Athletes. We're joined by lead author Aaron Provence from Children's Hospital Colorado. And in this study, the authors surveyed about 200 adolescent athletes about burnout, prior injuries, and whether they thought they were likely to have a future sports injury. Athletes who expected a future injury were more likely to be burned out. So with that, I will figuratively pass the mic over to Drs. Carter and Fabricant. Awesome. Dr. Provence, this was such an interesting paper. For me, the first question would be, do you think that this is a self-fulfilling prophecy or almost like a, a cycle that's difficult to interrupt? So it seems like injury leads to burnout, but then burnout may also lead to injury. And if this is the case, then you know, where do you think would be the best place to intervene? Yeah, it's a great question. So previous studies have shown exactly what you mentioned, that athletes who have sustained a previous injury then believe themselves to be more susceptible to a future injury. And other studies have shown that physical injury may lead to a long-lasting stress-related emotional disturbance. And this stress response may contribute to relationship between injury history and perceived risk of sustaining a future injury. And I would also say that previous injury has been shown to uh, lead to decreased social connectedness, also decreased support from teammates, and that may also lead to burnout. So it's basically like, where does this start? Is it athlete burnout or is it previous injury that starts this cycle? To me, I think it's if you have a, a kid in your clinic or you're seeing a kid on the field that has a previous injury um, and they're showing some signs or symptoms of athlete burnout or physical and mental exhaustion, talking to them about future risk of perceived injury is a a good place to start. And then talking to them about increased anxiety and stress around fear of injury uh, would also be a good place to intervene. Cool. Do you also, just to take, to kind of run with that, do you think that burnout itself, certainly it's associated with this perceived uh, risk of injury do you think that it's the burnout that's causing that? Do you think the that there could be some third variable like depression or something else that could be it could be a marker for as well? That's kind of my first part of my question. And the second part is, do you have any plans to study this out and look at what patients who actually manifest injuries, what their symptoms of burnout are? Yeah, so the first part of that, I would say absolutely anxiety, depression symptoms, stress-related uh, injuries are definitely probably contributing to some of this. I think there's also this um, part of burnout that the athletes feel entrapped. Um, So their entrapment, but also a loss of control that they feel like they have to be in their sport and they're not necessarily in it because they want to be or because it's still fun or they have passion for their sport. And I think that loss of control can then lead to increased perception of future risk of injury. And I also think that loss of control can probably intervene and, and, and let that athlete think that they can't control or cannot prevent the future injury from happening. Um, and then, yes, we are, have talked about following these athletes out long-term to see 
uh, if they develop signs and symptoms of athlete burnout, or if they have another injury, does that exponentially increase anxiety and stress related to their injuries in the past? I've got a different question. Um, how much do you think that the fact that you interviewed these kids or surveyed these kids at the end of the season contributed to your responses? I know you addressed that in your limitations, but do you think do you think that if you really repeated this at the beginning of this season, your findings might be significantly different? I do um, because of this happening, and we did mention that in our limitation slide, because of this happening at the end of the year, they're probably a little bit more mentally exhausted and physically exhausted from not just their academics, but also from their sports season, which could lead to increased responses of, of course, emotional and physical stress and exhaustion, which could assuade our results. Doing it at the beginning of the year uh, would have been probably a, a better time to do that. But of course, that's not when we do all of our mass physical, so a little bit more challenging logistically to do the study at that time. I've got one final question. You know, as providers, one of the things that is most challenging is actually having the time to, you know, sit down and have a discussion with our patients about how they're feeling about their injury, how about they're feeling about their recovery, and being able to, I think, connect in a meaningful way and then point them in the right direction. Do you have any um, either tips for a quick in-office or on-field assessment for the state of the state, you know, how the kid's doing psychologically, or even any resources that you point them to, be it like an app or, um, or online, when you suspect that there may be a problem? Yeah, great, great point. Um, I don't know of any apps that look at this specifically. Um, there is, of course, the athlete burnout questionnaire that you could either use that in your office or take some of those questions from the, the questionnaire and, and use them in a more limited fashion to kind of a screen for, for these type of conditions or symptoms. Yeah, I'll look into the app. That's a great idea. Well, that's great. Thank you, Dr. Provence, for uh, some new information on a hot topic. So next, we are going to move on to three back-to-back articles on discoid meniscus. So for the first one, we are going to lead author Crystal Perkins from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. The title of the article is Discoid Meniscus Repairs in Children and Adolescents, Minimum Two-Year Outcomes. In the study, the authors reviewed 34 patients with symptomatic discoid meniscus tears who underwent saucerization and repair. With three and a half years of average follow-up, only four needed revision, two were repairs, and two had partial meniscectomies during their revision. The authors conclude that torn discoid menisci do well after saucerization and repair, so they should be salvaged whenever possible. Crystal, great paper. I have a question for you about the revision. So it seems like in your study, the revisions tended to be early on. I think you had one kid who wasn't so interested in following instructions, so kind of failed really early. And then the other two, I, if I recall, were like within a year or so. But then your follow-up was out to, you know, three years or three plus years. So do you think, based on your data, based on your experience, that if a kid is going to re-tear or fail, that that tends to happen early on? That's kind of the first part of my question. And then if they make it to a year, are they kind of out of the woods? And then do you think that these results will hold long-term or do you think there might be a second kind of bump of failures later on? Sure. I think those are both great questions. So in terms of your first question, yes, I think those that fail their initial repair tend to happen early on. And so we weren't seeing necessarily as many new tears at that point in time, as much as just failing their initial repair, whether that was related to kind of just persistent pain or new tearing that they had, or whether that was kind of failure to follow, you know, repair restrictions afterwards. But I think the longer term implications of this are what's going to be really important. We spend a lot of time as do all of us, you know, educating families 
that discoid menisci are not normal menisci that tear. And so the long-term implications, you still have abnormal tissue with abnormal stress shielding across it. And so the long-term implications are really to be determined. Certainly our hope would be that by salvaging it and other authors have shown that the long-term implications of subtotal meniscectomy are certainly inferior to that of maintaining the meniscus. I think it just becomes a matter of identifying those correct menisci to repair that are otherwise stable and would likely do well in the long term. Dr. Perkins, I was wondering uh, what you think the role for biologic augmentation is. So when I talk to patients about a discoid, I say, well, I'm going to put stitches in and that's going to improve, you know, the biomechanics of your problem. But usually I'll also, you know, microfracture the notch or do a bone marrow venting procedure to try to improve the biology. Do you guys routinely do something like that? And if so, what? Yeah, those are great questions. And, um, you know, certainly a hot topic. There have been multiple kind of during this COVID era time, there have been multiple kind of webinars and several one recently looking at augmentation with various techniques for meniscus repairs. And certainly we do a lot to prepare both the bed for repair, whether that's trephinating kind of the capsular margin of the tear or using something to abrade the capsular margin of it to promote blood flow in that area. Um, And then as well as we do routinely, not all because it was multiple uh, surgeons in this series, but the majority of these have the marrow venting procedure done in the notch, you know, going along the lines with the fact that we know meniscus repairs in the setting of ACLs do far better with lower revisions than do those without uh, ACLs. So enhancing that with some marrow augmentation. Can you comment on how your preferred technique for repair and if that's different for a discoid versus like a native, a normal meniscus, just because you had meant, as you mentioned, you know, the tissue is more friable. It's not normal tissue. Are you more likely to do like a formal inside out repair from your uh, slides? You had some really beautiful inside out repairs with very fine stitches. Is that something you do all the time or just in discoid? Look to maybe touch on that a little bit. Sure. So our experience has been that generally these big menisco capsular tears that result in significant peripheral rim instability. So those that have the palpable or audible clunk as you either flex the knee or extend the knee are generally large capsular tears. And so, you know, they're not the kind that one or two fast fix are, you know, sufficient for. So some of these have more or less uh, numbers of sutures, just depending on the size of the kid. You know, some of these are six and seven year old kids that have the peripheral rim instability. But certainly our hope in doing this was to find that those who had failed, failed with, you know, all inside repairs or with fewer sutures. And just based on power alone, we can't make that conclusion. But certainly our general trend is more sutures to enhance stability and generally outside in for anterior horn versus inside out for posterior horn and body. When I was watching your talk or listening to your talk, I was interested actually by how confident you were that you could make a diagnosis with an MRI of peripheral rim instability. Because uh, to me, that's a diagnosis. I always, I talk to kids again about suspecting it and, um, and, and almost expecting it, but that I, I really feel like I can't make that diagnosis until I'm actually looking at it and then not just looking at it, but testing it. And then that's when I say, well, you have peripheral rim instability, because I think you can have peripheral rim instability without a tear. I think, right. I mean, I think some of the uh, abnormality is an anomalous connection or just abnormal tissue. So you, um, how confident are you that you can actually make a diagnosis of peripheral rim instability preoperatively? So I think in the, there are certain kids with certain MRIs, like the ones that we included on the slide, where I think you can easily tell that the meniscus has either torn off completely anteriorly and retracted posteriorly in the MRI or torn off posteriorly and retracted anteriorly. And I think those are ones that 
you know, I certainly prepare the families for a repair in that setting, assuming that you can mobilize a meniscus appropriately and get it back for a sufficient repair without too much tension. But then I think you're right. There's others that you go into. I did one just last week that anticipated a partial meniscectomy and got in and found that there was a big kind of from popliteal hiatus around to the root was completely unstable um, and ended up repairing it. So I think it's a combination of both. And I think that's where the importance of really assessing your meniscocapsular attachments at the time of your saucerization is important. Uh, yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think, and something I always try to teach the residents too, is to, you know, every single knee you're looking at, you know, look at what's normal. Cause mm-hmm. as we know, the lateral meniscus has some, has some more give than the medial one does. And so then when you're actually trying to attach the lateral meniscus that is discoid and potentially peripherally unstable, you don't want to actually, I think you can cause problems by actually tightening it too much. So I always try to teach our residents about pattern recognition and what is normal and what you're actually trying to restore. But a great paper. Thanks. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Perkins. Next, we are going to discoid meniscus paper two of three, and we're going to Dr. Megan Kuba in Hawaii. The paper's title is, Does Discoid Morphology Affect Performance on Return to Sport Testing After Meniscus Repair? In this study, the authors found that patients with a torn discoid meniscus took, on average, three months longer to return to sports after meniscus repair than their counterparts with normal meniscus tears. The study was performed at Seattle Children's, and the criteria for returning to sports was based on a combination of strength and balance tests. Hi, thank you for having me. Hey, Megan. Great paper. I think it was really interesting um, analysis that you did. And I think you had also mentioned kind of towards the end of your slideshow that the kids with discoid meniscus tended to be younger than the kids with the normal, you know, morphology meniscus. And so I was just interested in your thoughts on kind of how much of this do you think is the discoid meniscus versus other factors like age and then age maybe being a marker for like a decreased neuromuscular control and they might fail rehab. Do you think there's something specific about the discoid meniscus? Just kind of expand upon your thoughts on that. Yeah, thank you. Great question. I think that's really the the root of our study and what we would like to accomplish with a later, larger study, maybe, you know, something with PRISM or POSMA that we could actually do a multi-center kind of thing where we could get big numbers on this because we do know that these discoid patients tend to present younger with these tears because of the abnormal morphology. So it's very hard to uh, differentiate between age and the meniscus itself. And I think we know from other areas of pediatric orthopedics that physical therapy doesn't always work very well with our younger patients. They don't have the body control. They don't have the mental capacity to participate as well. And sometimes it can be a hindrance. So putting uh, these young kids, our youngest child was eight and, you know, putting an eight-year-old through the same sort of physical therapy protocols as a 19-year-old with a meniscus repair are going to have very different outcomes. And so we were not surprised that our discoid patients were younger, but, you know, the uh, significant finding of a three-month difference in terms of their return to sport was kind of eye-opening for us and helps to guide how we counsel our patients and the families of these usually younger children. I loved this paper for that exact reason, especially maybe because kids tend to be younger when they present with a discoid uh, and it may be their first injury and it may be their parents' first experience of an injury that, that when they start hearing words like, well, you'll be back at six months, it's devastating, right? It's just like the most catastrophic thing, but then really actually it's nine months, you know, and I think sometimes it's not even 
an injury. And I think that's also one of the things that plays a fact because a lot of our discoid uh, meniscus children are symptomatic from a small thing like just running and felt a pop or you know I had a seven-year-old who literally wasn't doing anything and then started feeling this clunk and that's very different than most of our older athletes who have a big injury and sort of have that mindset of okay I had an injury I'm going to get better from this injury whereas you take a child with a potentially normal feeling knee and say hey I'm going to cause you pain and now you're also not going to play for nine months it's a different subset of patients that we're working yeah i know it's a lot it's a lot for families to wrap their heads around but it's nice to have some data to support that recommendation to help them understand it and actually the point you just made i think if there's anybody on the panel who wants to comment i forget which paper it was but somebody had had or one of the papers had reported on return to sport and the really high rate of return to sport at the same level. But in my experience, just like you said, oftentimes kids with discoids, they're not necessarily athletes, right? It's the kid who bent down at her locker and all of a sudden had this huge meniscal injury and not, isn't necessarily trying to get back. And so I think even though we oftentimes will use return to sport as a criteria for, you know, or something that we report on, I think I'm not sure how meaningful it always is for the discoid kids. One question I had was, could you just go into a little bit on how you kind of either defined or confirmed that the kids without a discoid meniscus were actually not discoid? I find that a lot of times, you know, we'll we'll get a kid in mid-adolescence or 15, 16, 17 years old, and they have an isolated meniscus tear, and it doesn't look like a frank discoid, but it doesn't look totally normal. You know, it seems like these really happen on a spectrum. So how did you guys really kind of define or make the cutoff as to what was kind of normal versus discoid? All of these patients came from a single surgeon who had many years of experience doing these and the ultimate cutoff was made after the arthroscopic evaluation. So if it appeared to be a normal lateral meniscus um, in terms of tissue quality and size, it went into our normal tissue component. And then if they appeared to be discoid, both on the MRI and as well as clinically on the arthroscopic evaluation, then those were included in our discoid subset. (laughs) The one nice thing about a retrospective review. Yeah. And that's, I think, a really important point because really inspecting it arthroscopically, especially in those adolescents, is really important in defining the type of meniscus that you're dealing with. Because You know, if you read the textbooks, it talks about the MRI slices and the bow tie sign and three consecutive cuts, but that was kind of done earlier on in MRI technology. And now you have MRI cuts that are millimeter thick or submillimeter thickness. And so three cuts now could be two and a half millimeters, whereas before it was a centimeter. And so I think that your point of really examining it arthroscopically is really important. Well, that's great. Thank you, Dr. Kuba. Very informative paper. For our last paper to discuss, the title is Long-Term Follow-Up After Discoid Lateral Meniscus Preservation Surgery. We're joined by lead author, Dr. Min Coker from Boston Children's. And in this study, the authors collected patient-reported outcomes from 25 patients with discoid menisci, an average of almost 20 years after arthroscopy. I did not misspeak. That was 20 years and they all had surgery with meniscal debridement, but preservation of the meniscal rim, that is to say, not total meniscectomy. Functional results were very good, suggesting we can expect better outcomes by preserving the rim of the meniscus than other studies have shown with total meniscectomy. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Coker, and back to you guys, Drs. Carter and Fabricant. Yeah, Dr. Coker, great paper. I think it's interesting and uh, sometimes humbling to see these long-term follow-ups of the work that we do 
Um, you know, most of our studies tend to be earlier on. And it's cool to see your paper alongside Dr. Perkins' paper with the kind of midterm outcomes. One thing that she noticed in her paper was the kids who failed in their series failed early. And so what are your thoughts with seeing long-term follow-up? The kids who do fail, when do you see them fail? Do they fail early if they're going to fail? Or is there kind of like a double bump in the failures? What, what are you noticing? Yeah, I would say we also see, you know, some early failures. And the point of this study was really to look at sort of longer term outcomes. You know, I think over time, this condition, discoid lateral meniscus, is one that has gotten actually harder to treat or maybe I've gotten more respect for um, discoid meniscus. It's a complicated surgery. You're focusing on meniscal preservation. Each patient is very different. Uh, in terms of their age, their activity demands. The tissue can be very different in these patients, and the degree of instability can be very different as well. And so, you know, we often see uh, those that just sort of have bad tissue and shred in the short term uh, and end up with, you know, by the best of intentions, end up with subtotal uh, meniscectomy. And then we see others that, you know, may have some reoperations. Half of the patients in this study had reoperations, but then what are they like 15, 20 years down the road? Again, just to echo uh, what Dr. Fabricant just said, I mean, one of the things we always wonder about, I think at the time of surgery, when we're looking at this tissue in a kid who's six or eight or 10 is, you know, what in the world is this going to look like in 10 years or 20 years? And so it's fantastic to have a glimpse into that. What would you say to some of my adult colleagues who are sort of nihilist about treating discoids and they say they never do well and looking at your paper, 50% of them have a fair or poor outcome and 44% of them have an ipsilateral reoperation rate. So why isn't it better just to take it out and replace it right from the start? We know it's better than taking it out. And so the longer-term results of complete or subtotal meniscectomy are poor, and that's not even in the minimum 15-year time frame. That's in the 10-year time frame, very high rates of arthritis. There's been about three series showing that. So compared to total meniscectomy, subtotal meniscectomy, I think the results of preservation through saucerization and repair are superior. I think your question, Cordelia, was, you know, why not take it out and do a meniscus transplant? And now I've done many meniscal transplant patients with discoid lateral meniscus, and the results of meniscal transplant are pretty spotty as well. I mean, I would say about half of them do pretty well, and about half of them have extrusion or tearing or reoperations. And many of these patients are actually very young. And so if you have a total meniscectomy, subtotal meniscectomy in an eight-year-old, seven-year-old and they have arthritis at age 12 or 13 with open growth plates, do we really want to be doing, it's a technically challenging operation to avoid the proximal tibial physis. So I don't think a meniscus transplant, you know, as of yet is a panacea. We don't know how the transplanted tissue will grow as the knee grows and, and what will happen to it over the longer term. I, I totally agree. I think this is one of those times when it's so interesting to see the convergence of, of sort of a pediatric way of thinking about a problem and an adult way of thinking about the problem. And the pediatric way is we believe in like the power of PD and let them heal, but also your native tissue is probably always better if you can preserve it and restore it. So I agree, but it's interesting how much fervor there is from a meniscal transplant in the setting of a discoid. Yeah, I guess the only other question I would ask is just given your experience and given your findings in this paper, how are you counseling families pre-op? I mean, do you kind of hang the crepe early on? Uh, do you say you'll kind of see what it's like when you get in there and then have a better understanding? How do you kind of 
this is something I'm still trying to figure out. How do you instill confidence in the family doing what you know is the right thing, but with the understanding that the long-term results aren't as good as some of the other surgeries that we do? To me, this is a surgery um, where you do need long patients discussions and you need really sort of shared decision-making and, and, and late crepe and informed patient and family. And some of discoid meniscus surgery really is what you find at the time of surgery in terms of the degree of instability and the quality of tissue. I would counsel patients that they have a high likelihood of needing another operation, either another meniscectomy or another repair. Um, I think you've seen that in this series. You see that in most discoid menisci series. I would counsel patients that sometimes the tissue is just bad, continues to tear, and you end up without meniscus. And and maybe meniscus to transplant is an option in the future. I think when you, you know, sit down with parents and even with kids and you talk to them about trying to focus on preserving the tissue and repairing the tissue instead of taking out the tissue, that makes intuitive sense to them. But I think you, you just need lots of tools in your toolbox for this one. I think you need different types of ways to repair the meniscus. Um, you may need to get creative with meniscoplasty. You need lots of different instruments to get to the different areas in the meniscus. So to me, this, this is one that over time has become longer conversations and a little less sanguine about the long-term outcomes, even though they're better than total meniscectomy. Some of our outcomes, you know, we show them score of 78.6. That's not the 90s we see with our ACL patients. So I think they, some can do well, but some patients, you know, are, are doing fair. I've got one last question, actually, for the discoid panel. Can you share with us any uh, tricks you have or for surgical technique? So my thoughts on this are a discoid is one in which I'm much more likely to do like a hay bale stitch or, you know, around the world stitch, because even if you have done your partial meniscectomy, very often you've got that residual horizontal cleavage tear that extends all the way to the periphery. And so that's something that I've started to do as a way to approach that. And my other thing I, I think about and I tell the residents too is that, you know, oftentimes in the posterior rim, I'll be using, you know, all the all inside devices, but I think they have a much higher fail rate in discoids than in others. And I think it's because of that anomalous posterior meniscocapsular tissue. But any any thoughts on that? I'll jump in. I, for me, I think there's lots of tricks. Don't be stuck to your two normal portals. So accessory portals can be very helpful in using a spinal needle to see where a portal has to be to get to a certain area of the meniscus can be very helpful. Just like you said, Cordelia, be thinking about inside-out sutures uh, more than all inside devices. Um, you'll need the incision to protect the perineal nerve. For saucerization, I think all different baskets are important. Straight, side, 30 degrees, side, 90 degrees, back biters. I've actually evolved to really liking meniscal knives, straight and curved meniscal knives. And then most of these tears are going to be complex tear patterns with a horizontal cleavage component. And if you keep chasing that horizontal cleavage component back to the rim, you can end up with very little tissue. So this is a place where you can uh, do a sandwich stitch for trying to repair those horizontal cleavage types of tears. And then the final thing would be to not worry so much about the inner rim. It may look a little bit big or trapezoidal instead of triangular. But when you go back into these knees, it's amazing to see the remodeling and how triangular the meniscus can become. Yeah, I think those are all great points that Min makes. I would say the other thing to be paying attention for is just recognizing the meniscal instability. So being careful that you're looking through both your medial and lateral portals, recognizing both the anterior and posterior rim instability. And so making sure you don't do a beautiful saucerization, but leave them with an unstable meniscus that's going to be prone to fail.
I would just add, I think all that is great. I don't have anything to add to the meniscal work, but I think that since I've started practice, gotten really aggressive in getting long leg alignment films in these kids, especially the kids who are young and have growth remaining, because I think you can do them a huge favor by being a bit aggressive with guided growth early on, not only to offload the compartment, perhaps prevent arthritis, but you know, if like Dr. Coker said, 10 years down the line, they do need a meniscus transplant, they're kind of already teed up for that. And so that kind of protects the meniscus, protects the cartilage and sets them up for a better situation down the line instead of needing like a bigger osteotomy procedure. That's a great point. I've started doing that too. Well, that's great, everyone. Before we go, two quick questions for everyone and we'll just go down the line. First is what is your favorite surgery? And the second is, do you pronounce it Posna or Posna? <laughs> so Dr. Kuba, can we start with you? So I say Posna and my Favorite surgery. Can I go and think about that? Yes. Dr. Carter, you're, you're next. I think I say Posna and Posna. I think I use them interchangeably because I don't think I know which is correct. So I, I think I just switch it up. IT band ACL is still one of my favorite surgeries. It's a fun dissection and those kids do well. Dr. Fabricant? I say Posna, but I still don't know if that's right or not. I would say Cordelia kind of took what I was going to say, but I think another one of my favorites is uh, tibial spine fracture repair because I learned a couple of really cool techniques in my fellowships and those procedures really make my adult sports colleagues really nervous. And I, I like doing them. So I, the, the combination of that just makes them fun. Dr. Coker? You know, I say POSNA. The bigger issue to me about POSNA is just we have pediatric with PED and orthopedic with AE. So we're not consistent with our diphthongs, but I, <laughs> I've learned to let that go. Um, <laughs> And then uh, my favorite surgery is, you know, just a big uh, multi-ligament reconstruction, ACL, PCL, and you have to open something, posterior lateral corner or medial and posterior medial corner, dissect out the sciatic nerve. I, I just really enjoy those. They're not often, but when they come, they're fun. Dr. Perkins? I say POSNA, although I think I said POSNA when I've heard other people say POSNA. Um, and then I really enjoy the art of telefemoral instability surgery and then multi-ligament knee reconstruction. Cool. And Dr. Provence. Yeah. So I say POSNA as the primary care sports medicine doc in the group, I would have to defer on the, the uh, favorite <laughs> surgery. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, thank you again, everyone for joining us. And I hope everyone enjoys the virtual meeting. Thank you, thank you very much. Thanks guys. Have a good night.